Amen. As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 12. We'll also be in Matthew chapter 25 today. We're in the midst of the summer months, and during these months, people do a lot of traveling and enjoying time with family. And you know, when you're on a trip and you're doing something fun, whenever you summit Baldy or you see Shamu or you sing with Mickey or you sit by the sea, There's these moments where you're on vacation and enjoying this, and you're like, you know what? I'm living the dream right now. I mean, this is what life is all about, just living the dream. But then eventually, they slip that bill underneath the door of your hotel room, and they tell you you got to go home, and vacation ends, and you come back home. And what do we say? We say it's time to go back to reality, time to go back to reality. And here's, here's a question. In our culture, what does it mean to live the dream? Now, early in American history, and I think it's important, particularly those of us who are Christians, we need to remember that early in American history, living the dream was about religious freedom. Ultimately, Christian people came to the United States because they wanted to live in an environment where they were free to worship God. As the years went by, uh, the American dream became the land of opportunity. And in America, you could own land, and there was opportunity for you, for anybody, to prosper. As the post-Civil War era began, uh, anyone, regardless of race or social class, could enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Since the 60s, the American dream has been about absorbing life with no moral restrictions and uh, enjoying the luxuries that life has has to offer and eventually finding a strong measure of security so that you are safe and nobody can take the things that you have away from you. But, But I wonder, and think with me on this, is is living soft and safe and secure the goal of life? Or is there possibly more in life? Well, in Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus runs into one of the messiest situations that you can run into in life. He runs into a family fighting over an inheritance. If you ever come across that, it doesn't get any messier than a family fighting over an inheritance. And so in verse 13 of Luke 12, someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he he then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Now let's go back and read Verse 15, again, make sure you zero in on this, okay? Watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. My daughters, who are seven and five, are about halfway through a black belt. They've been taking karate, 
And so they're now at the point where they're starting to break boards and they put on this sparring gear, all these different pads and a helmet, and they actually have them practice all their fighting and all their moves against other kids. And so whenever they they get ready to spar, I I always have this pep talk with them. They get their equipment on and I, I get them, I say, okay, girls, now, as you're fighting, make sure you keep your hands down so that the other person can kick you in the head. And then they look at me and they're like, Dad. I'm like, no, it's very important. Keep your hands down because you want the other person to kick you in the head, right? No, Dad. You've got to put your hands up. And they always illustrate for me, you know, you're supposed to keep your hands here so that if they try to kick you in the head, then you can, you can block it. Well, that's the imagery that Jesus is giving us here when it comes to greed. He's saying, okay, greed is your opponent, and, and you're supposed to be in a fighting stance against all sorts of greed. And so Jesus says, watch out. In other words, danger. There is danger here. And because there's danger here, don't be apathetic about this, just hoping that you might survive it. Instead, be on guard against all different types of greed, because greed is ninja-like. You don't see it coming. Over the years as I've, I've talked to people, I, I've never had someone sit there and go, Pastor, my, my biggest problem in life is greed. Do you know anybody that I can get for counseling about my greed? We prefer to think of ourselves as worthy, capable, or careful. But if you really peel back the layers in a lot of our lives, a lot of us wrestle with greed. And that's why Jesus identified it here. Be on guard against it. Look out for it. It's going to sneak up on you. So watch out for all kinds of greed. Now, let me give you a homework assignment, okay? Now, don't do this homework assignment during the sermon. Make sure you wait until you get home to do the homework assignment. Everybody knows that the sermon's for checking your email, not doing homework assignments, right? So uh, here's what I want you to do at some point this week. Take out a piece of paper, take out your phone, wherever you keep notes, and write down what does a successful person's life look like? What does a successful person's life look like? And if you're a parent, here's, here's the challenge. Put down on paper, what would you consider success for your children? When they leave your home and go off into the world, what would you consider success? Now, I think it's important that we understand that there's nothing wrong with having nice things. Don't overdose on Christian guilt. I've come across this a lot over the years at any time a Christian person gets something nice, then other people look down upon them or judge them, and they feel guilty for having nice stuff. It's okay to have nice things. The problem with greed, greed becomes a problem when you begin to measure your success by the abundance of things, where you begin to see your value as a person by those things which you have. Money Magazine this week released the 10 richest people of all time. And the top five richest people of all times, these were the folks that had more stuff than anybody else who has ever lived. The top five were ruthless emperors. If you read about their lives, they killed, they stole, they enslaved. They were paranoid individuals. 
Most of them were a little crazy. And the top three all died before the age of 60. They were constantly having to watch out because they were afraid somebody was going to take that which they had already taken. And into this scene and into our culture, Jesus speaks these words, one's life is not found in the abundance of possessions. Well, then the Bible says he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive, verse 17. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. So the scenario is you you have a farmer who has become very successful. He probably had many people farming his land. He had worked very hard to get to this point. Well, one day he hits it big. Kroger wants him to be the sole supplier of broccoli and tomatoes for all their stores. So suddenly, I mean, he is rich beyond rich. He looks at his life and the days ahead, and he's like, I'm never going to run out of money. I'm never going to run out of stuff. He has more money than he ever dreamed of. What to do? Now, some of you said, I'll be glad to take his problem, okay? I'll take on his problems right now. Well, here's what he decides. He decides that he's going to tear down what he has, and he will build bigger barns in order to store his stuff there. In verse 19, then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Now, as I was reading through the parable right here, I heard the screeching sound of brakes because I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like what we're told is the American dream. Acquire a lot of goods, store up these goods so that you have plenty for many years, and then ultimately the goal, the successful point in life is where you reach that stage where you can take it easy, eat what you want, drink what you want, go see whatever you want to see, and just enjoy yourself. That's living the dream, right? This guy had finally reached the point where he could live the dream. And in verse 20, God says to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then Jesus says that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, did God really call this guy a fool? I mean, it's got a sting when God calls you foolish. It's one thing to have your mama call you foolish. But to have God call you foolish? Now, understand, the problem was not that he was wealthy. The problem was not that he had done well in his farming. The core issue was how he viewed it. He had the wrong goals. Uh, Specifically, he had forgotten that you can't take it with you. You don't rent a U-Haul to the grave. And if the goal of life is the accumulation of things, 
we all fail. Naked you come into this world, and in a cheap suit you leave this world. You don't take stuff with you. If accumulating things is the goal of what living is all about, then ultimately we all fail. He hoarded for himself, Jesus said, rather than being rich towards God. He had put himself in the God role, and he was trying to hang on to everything he had, make sure he had plenty, just absorb life for all it had to offer, rather than investing his life into things which were meaning, meaningful. So as I'm going through this parable and approaching the parable that we're about to look at, there was a caffeinated reality that hit me. And that is that to be successful, most of us have to reshape our views of what success is. My friend Vince likes to say, if you're going to change the dance, you've got to change the music. If we're going to truly find success in life, a lot of us, we're going to have to kind of deprogram ourselves from this concept that success is all about the accumulation of things and begin to realize that there is a deeper meaning, a, a deeper reality to what it means to be a successful person. So chew on this question. When it comes to my money, when it comes to my talents, when it comes to the resources that God has given me, what is my goal? What is the goal of success? Well, last week we looked at Matthew chapter 25, and go ahead and look with me there again. In Matthew chapter 25, we saw the parable of the virgins. Now, the parable of the virgins was about being prepared for the day that the Lord comes back, for the day that you stand face to face with the Lord. And we saw how some were prepared and some were not. The parable of the virgins was also about faith. And we discussed how one of the keys to being prepared for the end of life is how you see time. And as Christians, we see time fundamentally differently than how a secularist would see time. Uh, for a secularist, time, past, present, and future, is seen within the hundred-year window in which your life exists. For a Christian person, whenever we look at the past, we see that before we were ever born, God made decisions. Before we were ever born, God revealed himself to us. He showed us those things which are true. We have millions of people who have lived for thousands of years by those truths which God has revealed. God has preserved those truths in Holy Scripture so that as we look at the past, we see that our God that created us has also guided us into the present and into the future. Now, as we look at our present, we have one common goal that transcends every area of life, and that is to bring glory to our God. So whether I'm a student trying to make uh, good grades and, or be successful in sports, or whether I, I'm married, or, or whether I'm at work, or whether I'm walking the dog around the neighborhood, whatever I'm doing, I have this one common goal. I want to do it in such a way that I bring glory to God. I want to live my life 
for his glory. And as we think about the future, the future is not just the next 20 years or the next 40 years, but when I think about the future, uh, I think about eternity with God. And we discussed how for the Christian, earth is a hotel stay and heaven is our home. And whenever you begin to realize that from our perspective, time is not this clock that is always diminishing, but time is eternal and we're going to be with God forever, it radically frees you to live life here differently. The parable of the virgins. Be prepared. Live your life differently. And now as we move into the next parable, what we call the parable of the talents, Jesus tells us a little bit about how to be successful here in this window of our earthly life. So Matthew 25, verse 14. For it is just like a man going on a journey. And he called his own slaves and turned over his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two. And to another one, to each according to his own ability. And then he went on a journey. Immediately, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, the spiritual parallel is preparing for the coming of Christ. But the parable, from an earthly perspective, involves a wealthy man, and the wealthy man goes on a journey. And so before he goes on the journey, he divides up responsibilities. And so the first guy comes in, and he's one of these guys that just has make-you-sick talent. I mean, he can do it all. He's good-looking. He's, he's um, got he can sing, he can preach, he can dance. and I mean, he can just do it all, okay? Just make you sick talent. And so the master looks at him and says, I'm going to give him five talents worth of responsibility. And so this guy takes the responsibility that he was given, and he invests that, and he brings back five more talents. He takes the five talents, and he turns them into ten. So the second guy comes in before the master. And the master looks at him. He says, well, this guy, I mean, he's a nice guy. He's steady Eddie. He's not oozing with talent, but he's got a good attitude. You know, he's kind of like a fourth-round draft pick. So we'll give him two talents, okay, and see what he can do with two talents. And the guy takes those two talents, and he invests them, and he's able to get two more talents. Well, then the third guy comes in, and the third guy shows up. He's late for the meeting. He's got waffle syrup on his robe. Xbox controller and headset on him because he'd been up all night playing video games. And so the master looks at him and says, well, I don't have much to work with here, but he's my brother-in-law. <laughs> Got to do something, you know. So, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll give him one talent. Let's see what he can do with his one talent. Well, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with him. Verse 20, the man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents and said, Master, you gave me five talents. Look, I've earned five more talents. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. 
And then the man with two talents also approached, and he said, Master, you gave me two talents, and look, I have earned two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. And then the man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you're a difficult man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. Now, verse 25 is key. So I was afraid. So I was afraid. And I went off and hid your talent in the ground. Look, have what is yours. So the one talent guy took what the Lord had given him. And he was afraid to do anything with it. He was afraid to take any risks. He was afraid to live in faith. And so he took that talent and he just buried it. But he thought to himself, hey, by burying it, at least I'm not going to lose it. At least I will hang on to what I have. And if you think about our culture, the world in which we live, so much of our society is consumed with I don't want to lose what I have. We live our lives behind constant locks. We live our lives always in worry that someone's going to take that which is mine. And many of us, we never take any steps of faith. We never take any risks. We never put ourselves outside of our comfort zone. We live our entire lives consumed by fear, overwhelmed with the what-ifs. What if someone takes this? What if I can't uh, measure up? What's going to happen? What if, what if, what if? We spend all of our days scared to death. Now, how do you think the man thought the master would respond? I personally think that the one-talent guy thought the master would say, hey, good job. I had low expectations of you, and at least you didn't blow it. You brought me back my talent. But his master replied to him in verse 26, you evil, lazy slave. This isn't going well, is it? If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and when I returned, I would have received my money back with interest. So Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even that what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now there are multiple layers to this parable. And I could probably preach it for days. I'm not exaggerating. I probably could preach it for days. But you probably don't want to stay and hear me do all that. Want to take a vote? Okay. So I tell you what. I want to zero in on two ideas here. The first is opportunity, and the second is faith. Here today in the room, some of you are five-talent people. I mean, you just have ability and opportunity and blessing oozing. You look at your life and you have abundance. And God has blessed you beyond measure. 
You're a five-talent person. Some of you say, well, I'm not a five-talent person, but I'm a, I'm a two-talent person. I have to be honest, God has given me quite a bit, and I have a lot of blessings, and I have a lot of opportunity, and there's things that I can do for the Lord with the person that I am. And then some of you would say, hey, I'm not much. I'm just a one-talent person. I, God's blessed me. I'm here, but I don't have much. How the talents are divided is not always fair. But I want you to understand this. The issue is not how much do you have. The real issue is what are you doing with it? What are you doing with the one life that God has given you? I find that often we are so envious of other people's lives that we don't make anything of the life that God has given us. And we spend all of our time, we spend all of our energies worrying about and obsessing over how other people are living. And in the process, we never do anything with the one talent, the two talents that God has given us. Envy always leads to missed opportunity. Fear always leads to missed opportunity. Because you don't put yourself out there in situations where God can do something with the life that he has given you. And if you spend all your days worrying about somebody else's life, you're not going to see the goal of your own life. You're going to be kind of like Uncle Si going hunting. The guy can't see. So he just shoots a lot and hopes to hit something by the volume of his shots. And that's how a lot of people live their lives. They don't have any direction. They don't have any target. And so we just spend all of our lives just aimlessly firing at things, hoping that that which we're trying to hit will somehow bring us satisfaction. And as soon as we find that which we've been stalking and we receive it, we're still dissatisfied. And so we repeat the process over and over and over again, and we go to our graves without any real lasting satisfaction because satisfaction is not going to be found in the abundance of things. Satisfaction is going to be found in your spirit. When your spirit is connected with God's spirit and your life exists for his glory and you begin to invest the life that God has given you into the spiritual economy of risk for the glory of your heavenly father. And so Jesus invites you and he invites me to reshape the way in which we see life. That life is not about the collecting of things. It's not about playing it safe. It's not even about things always being fair. But life is about wisely investing the totality of what God has given me into his kingdom for his glory. I don't want to waste my life. And you waste your life when you bury the opportunities God has given you beneath prideful, average, or humble rocks of perceived security. And so to the man who built bigger barns in order that he might eat and drink and be merry, God sharply says, you fool. And to the man who takes what God gives him and buries it, the man who polishes the monument of fear while faith rots inside, 
God says, take this life void of faith, vision, and risk and throw it into the darkness because that's not the life I've given them. That's, how, that's not how your life is supposed to be spent. You say, okay, Lash, what does God want from me here? What is he after? On the first parable, Jesus teaches us that we are to live our lives as being rich towards God. In other words, we don't take all the blessings of God and just hoard them. We don't see the blessings of God as just terminating upon our lives like water balloons hitting a wall. Instead, we see the blessings of God coming into our lives and then going out because God blesses us in order that we might use those blessings in ministry to Him. And in the second parable, we see that God wants you to invest the totality of yourself in Him. He wants you to trust Him with all of you. To be that servant that invests what He has given you into His kingdom. Back in April, I was at uh, Southwestern Seminary. And I was um, in some meetings there. And so I went out for a run one evening. And I was running around the campus. And I came up to the administration building. There's this rotunda there and as I was running there at this iconic building for those of us that know the seminary I I I saw this aged man walking to his car and I thought to myself you know he really needs some help he he had a walker he had a bunch of books and he was walking to his car and so as I got closer I realized that it was not just some random man this was Dr. James Leo Garrett Dr. Garrett was my theology mentor he was the man that taught me in seminary, he came to my wedding, he uh, helped me with doctoral studies and things like that, and so he was someone that had really invested in my life, and so I stopped, and I had an opportunity there just to talk to him, to catch up with him, I hadn't seen him in 15, 20 years, and as we talked, he, he didn't remember me, and so that was a little bit difficult because, you know, who he was to me. But I, I'd heard that his health was fading and that he was moving in with his son. And so, so I understood, and I had an opportunity there to thank him for the investment that he had made in my life. Well, two weeks later, I'm sitting back in my office and my cell phone rings. So I pick it up, and on the other end of the line is Dr. Garrett. And somehow he had tracked my number down, and he says to me, Is this Lashley Banks? And I'm like, yes, sir, although I go by Lash these days, I know, that's why I couldn't remember you. And he apologized. And he said, I'm sorry I didn't remember you. And then he said something that meant the world to me. He said, you are a really good student for me. And I apologize for not remembering you. You did well. And then before I knew it, he was like gone from the phone. (laughs) Have a good day. Bye. It was over. And and I thought about this in terms of the parable here. Of reaching that finish line of life and having God say, well done. Well done. You were a good and faithful servant. You took what I gave you, whether it was a lot or whether it was a little. And you did what you could with it. You invested it into my kingdom. You lived by faith. Well done. You're a good and faithful servant. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads?
come to a time of commitment. The band's going to come, uh, lead us in uh, a hymn during this time. If you feel led to sing, sing. If you feel led to pray, pray. If there's anything that I can help you with here uh, at the front, I'll be on the front row, and I'd be glad to encourage you, pray with you, help you however I may. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you, Father, for this time where we can come together to worship you. And as we've looked at these scriptures today, if we're honest and if we really uh, dive into them, they force us to deal with some pretty pointed questions, some pretty difficult things to ask of ourselves. But I pray, Lord, that we might not just live in the shell of materialism, Father, may we be able to see life beyond the physical. May we be spiritual people who welcome the Holy Spirit to come alive within us. And through that Spirit, may we see the world differently and live our lives with a contrast that draws people to your cross. May there be something refreshing about our lives that is living water, quenching the dissatisfaction of the soul. And I pray, Father, that you might allow us to invest what we have into your kingdom, to be rich towards you, to be generous, to love you with all of our heart and soul, to love the one and others that are in our lives, and to love others. It's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.